0: Hi, this is presenter Crystal DiNapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R each Sunday afternoon. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU. So, as always, I would like to start off by acknowledging that Triple R is broadcasting out from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. I would like to acknowledge that sovereignty has not been ceded and that they are the traditional custodians with these continued connections to these beautiful lands, waterways and skies and pay my respects to elders past and present and to extend that respect to any Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening in on today's show. So we're about to have a conversation with Palawa veterinarian, Dr. Cam Raw. Cam's research explores zoonotic parasites in Indigenous communities, and he has recently been appointed the Assistant Dean Indigenous of the Faculty of Science at the University of Melbourne, which is an incredible achievement. Uh, so, Cam, welcome to Indigenuity.
1: Thanks very much, Crystal. It's great to be on the program.
0: Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. I'm very... Uh, excited about your area of knowledge because I have very little understanding. So I feel like this is going to be a conversation in which ho- me, but hopefully also all the listeners uh, learn quite a bit. <laughs> so I'll I wanna- do
1: my best. I'll, uh, I'll definitely try. <laughs> I'm
0: sure you'll nail it. <laughs> um, I Look, I know you're doing a lot of really cool work at the moment, but I wanted to start this conversation by taking it pretty far back and by asking you what even drew you as, as a kid, as a teen, to pursue this career in veterinary science.
1: That's a great question. Um, one of my my mentors uh, since I first entered vet school um, has a, a great point that she often makes, where for a lot of people, there's there's a particular person in their life who really inspired them to their their career path. But I think if you ask just about any, uh, any vet out there, um, they'll probably tell you that it was actually an animal. And so I think for me, just like so many other vets, um, there's just growing up with animals was a real source of, of inspiration, wanting to to learn more about them and to, I think also build into that, uh, a way of, of helping people too.
0: That's very beautiful. I, that made me almost a bit emotional. I'm a definitely an animal lover and so I can see how they could inspire one pursuing such an extraordinary career path. And so w- what steps did you have to take to be able to get to the point where you're at? Um, for for anyone who is listening who might be in high school who is interested in your career path, what what mm. were, the I guess, the stages of this journey for you?
1: Yeah, so for me, uh, being from Lutruita or Tasmania, uh the the first step was actually leaving home uh there's no there's no vet school in Tasmania so it was uh, a pretty big big leap for me to to move interstate and move up to Melbourne to the the nearest vet school and that was at the University of Melbourne and so uh, I always had a, a real love of biology uh, probably not not so much along the plant biology side of things I could get into it but nowhere near as much as animal biology but uh, brushing up a bit more on f- things like physics were never really my my strong suit so um doing doing a fair bit of work in physics and chemistry were several uh, prerequisites for getting into vet and uh, so at that stage I was actually in um the Bachelor of, of Vet Science. So back then when I went through, it was still a bachelor's degree. It's it's no longer the case, at least at Melbourne, mm. and several other unis are, are following suit. So it's now actually a postgraduate degree. So uh, these days it, it involves doing a Bachelor of Science or, or something similar. Uh, and then usually within that you need a, a quite a, a big focus on uh, biology, and things along those lines with a bit of, as I said, uh, chemistry and, and physics. And then, uh, yeah, applying to get into vet school, which uh, as you can imagine is is quite competitive. There are a lot of people who would who would love to be vets and only so many spots available. So I was really fortunate to be able to to earn my spot in vet school.
0: That's incredible. I can, yeah, I... I've gone an academic route as well. And so I feel like I can um, really relate and empathize, I guess, with uh, a number of the things that you've mentioned, in particular, um, having to move from Litruita across Mm. the ocean, uh, well, not the ocean, but across the waters um, to come here to Melbourne. What sort of impact did that have on your studies? That's definitely, you know, some students who are a bit more local, right? They have that sort of pressure of starting uh, uh, the undertaking of study, but you coming from you know a different state, it really adds a different layer to that change or that, that big, I guess, like life change that you're encountering.
1: Yeah, I was really fortunate that I had three of my closest friends from school moving up at the same time, or some had moved a little bit earlier, but it meant that I kind of already had a, a pre-built support network there. So I was really fortunate in that respect. It's mm. sort of one of the side effects of Tassie not having a huge diversity of uni degrees. So I uh, had a friend doing uh, doing physio, another doing um, some masters in, in communications. And so it meant that there was a bunch of us moving up at the same time. And so I was really fortunate to have that support network. It made it much easier much easier and much more much more fun to to make the move.
0: Oh, that's wonderful to hear, uh, very genuinely. So your degree appears to have taken you to many places. Upon reading more about your work, I saw mention of, and I have to quote because I feel like this just needs to be quoted, but the flood-irrigated dairy country of northern Victoria to James Harriet's yeah. stomping ground in Yorkshire, the rolling hills of West Sussex, and, of course, the majestic landscape of Arnhem Land, of which you spent time—I think you said—across with ten different communities. Could you share with mm. us a bit about these study highlights? They sound incredible.
1: Yeah. So um, the the first first practice that I worked at as a vet was yeah up in a little town called Rochester in um, Northern Victoria and Yorley Yorta country, uh, and loved it up there. Uh, worked a lot with dairy cows. It was a really fun um, place to work, work with some brilliant people, and then, as so often seems to happen, I did the... It's a bit of a vet pilgrimage to go and work in the UK for a little bit. Mm. Uh, there's lots of different styles of practice, and I learned a lot while I was over there. So yeah, working in, in Yorkshire was was very different working in some you know barns that were a couple of hundred years old and just seeing some very different styles of farming and vet practice. Uh, but then what, what brought me back was uh, to continue some work that I'd been doing since my final year of vet school in several different communities uh, right across Arnhem Land. Um, so I first started that work with Professor Liz Tudor Who's been going out to to West Arnhem in particular, focusing on Gumbelanya since two thousand and four. And so she's been running an annual program with several vets and taking final year vet students up there since then. And I was lucky enough to to be a part of that as a uh, final year vet student. And um, Liz hasn't really been able to get rid of me since. So <laughs> I've been going up every year, um, every year that we've been able to without without COVID ever since then
0: oh wow and i look i've done a bit of stalking right um this one i don't think i can quote properly but i was very interested you were doing a bit of travel i think to arnhem land it might be this this exact thing that you're talking about with liz tudor um Mm -hmm. that was like a program where you're going for a couple of weeks to assist with animals and then that was impacted by covid i don't know if you could tell Mm. me a bit about what that program was it sounded really it sounded like really important
1: yeah, yeah. So that's the that's the program where we where we go up. Um, it's it originally just started as a program where we would go every July for a couple of weeks, um, being the, the dry season. That was much easier to get to. We have to do a river crossing to get there, which makes it um, inaccessible with all of our gear uh, during the wet. So what we do is we we go up, um, we take some some final year vet students with us. We take some volunteer vets go up, set up a um, remote vet practice. We do a lot of parasite treatments all around the community. We're going house to house, speaking to people about their animals, learning what their needs are, what they would like to happen with their animals. Uh, There is a lot of um, very treatable parasite infections that that occur up there, a lot of the time just due to the climate um, and remoteness with the nearest vet clinic being... For some of those communities, either an eight-hour drive or a several-hour plane flight away. Wow! So, really, just giving what's what's commonly pretty basic vet treatment out in these in these communities, but seeing some pretty drastic improvements in the welfare of the animals as a result. And um, it's always been really rewarding work, and just getting to to speak to community, um, learn about the many different um, important roles that animals can can hold out there. So, for instance, in Gumbelania in West Arnhem, it's actually dog dreaming country. So they're hugely important there and hold so many important roles. And just being able to learn all these amazing things has, yeah, been a, a really inspiring part of my life for many years now.
0: And I, I found that very interesting as well, this important role, because... The, I I know there's probably a proper biologist term for this, but the dogs are the um, quite often the bearers. Do people say vectors? I don't know, of um, of these parasites, but they play such an important role in community. Uh, I, I found that such an, in, an interesting point. I was wondering um, what, I guess, with uh, you could expand a bit more about, um, I guess, like the way that dogs in particular are impacted by these parasites.
1: Yeah, yeah, so... I guess one of the one of the big things up there is that there has, for a, a little while, been just a lot of dogs, and it, it happens anywhere where dogs can roam freely. They're not generally kept in fences like they are down here where I am in in Melbourne, mm. and so they're roaming around. They're breeding as dogs do, and so there's lots of puppies and lots of dogs, and. As a result, they can pick up parasites, like the ones that I study in particular, uh, soil-transmitted helminths. So, what that means is they're infectious worms, like hookworms and threadworms. And so they can actually pick them up from the soil. They can get in either through their mouths or through their skin. And when they're passed out in poo, uh, the worms live in the soil, and then can infect people in the same way, either through mouse or, or through skin. And so it, it really means that because these dogs are free roaming, and normally there's quite a few of them, that it can present quite a, a significant risk for communities. And so part of my research has been learning just how big a risk that is, and then also what we can do to treat the dogs and also hopefully stop infections occurring in people. And, how... and so you can imagine that yeah. um, because they're so important, it's it's important that the dogs are healthy and you know, people are going to keep as many dogs as they want. Uh, but it's important that you know, they aren't getting out of control and that and that people are actually able to to keep the number of dogs that they want to keep, not just the number of dogs that they end up with as a result of you know huge huge numbers of dogs breeding.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that would be difficult. Um... Especially with no, uh, yeah, I guess like nothing to sort of balance out the population. So dogs can just sort Mm -hmm. of take over in that regard. Mm. So how how difficult is it to provide treatment? You said it was sort of standard. It's just, I guess, not very easy to access.
1: Yeah, so... As far as our work goes, it's most of what we're doing is providing parasite treatments. But we're doing other other surgeries, like we're taking lumps off if dogs have little little growths, um, parasite treatments, and a lot of desexing surgery. So that's the bulk of of what we're doing, which is very yeah, as I said, basic stuff for most vet practices. Um, but just the the ability to do it out there, we often don't have the most ideal circumstances to do our surgeries in, which is why we're a bit more limited in the scope of the surgeries that we can do. And it also means that we have to take a lot of equipment with us. So we have to take all of our surgical kits, all of our anaesthetics, all of our surgical drapes, um, the equipment that we use to, to clean the surgical kits all of our drugs that we need. So um, it's a whole whole bunch of stuff that we have to carry out there. And sometimes we're even flying out to island communities as well. So we have to be really, really careful with, uh, with what we can take so that we can actually get the work done.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. Is there uh ways to make this process easier or is there not enough i guess like supporter resources that it, it does need to be you know veterinarians flying in and bringing all of their gear with them to be able to do these types of procedures
1: yeah it's uh it's a bit of a a tricky thing there are some um local government organizations up in arnhem land so the east arnhem regional council actually employs veterinary staff because they they see that it's a it's a really important service that people in community need um but it it does mean that there's there's still vets there who are they have nine different communities that they service and that's a lot of that is flying between communities as well so sometimes we can um, set it up so that we can leave some gear in particular communities that makes it a bit easier logistically. Mm. But in general, it's just a lot of a lot of travel, um, a lot of moving around, and um, yeah, it's it's always a bit of a logistical challenge, and it's often prone to change each year when we go. But that's kind of the part of the fun of it sometimes.
0: Oh, that's good. At least you have an optimistic sort of view on that. At least you embrace yeah. the chaos. So uh you said that like you've over the last few years in doing these types of trips that you you're saying you've seen things have gotten better?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So there are several different ways that we try to measure what what we're doing because obviously if you're going out there doing all this work using all these resources, you want to know that you're having an effect. And so we have a few um, pretty rudimentary ways that we that we try to measure our effect, but but they definitely do do show changes. So one of the ways that uh, we we tend to do that is looking at body and skin condition scores. So body condition scores. If anybody's taken their dog or or cat to the vet, you'll probably see a chart on the wall that's generally got either a one to five or one to nine scale. And that's essentially um, if they're down at a a one, they're really underweight. And if they're up at a nine, then they're quite significantly overweight. And so what we tend to see in communities where there's a lot of dogs that haven't been de-sexed is that they're spending all their time running around, um, expending a lot of energy on mating behaviors, particularly for the females. It takes a huge toll on their bodies having a lot of litters and they're often litters of nine or 10 puppies and and then having to produce milk for them as well. It's really hard on their bodies. Mm. And so by desexing them, it means that they're not having to put all their energy into having litters of puppies. And so what we have a look at over the years is seeing if we're improving the, um, the general overall average body condition score, which we do tend to see, and particularly for just looking at individual dogs year to year, we see huge improvements in both the body condition score and also the condition of their skin. So there's some dogs that are looking really run down, they've got mange, they're just looking really, really sore and and miserable. And then once they're desexed, or once they've had some parasite treatment that we give them, we tend to see a, a pretty marked difference, and they've got their fur back. They're not itchy. They're just comfortable, happy dogs, which is always really beautiful to see.
0: Oh, that's so wholesome. That's it's very good for to hear that things are on the improve in that regard as well, and especially with taking into account the cultural significance of the dogs in these communities, um, it it really is a I don't know. It's, it's it's really good to hear at least that things are improving. I feel quite often you know, we've, there's a lot of tough, tough things going on in the world. Um, mm. So I wonder if you could expand on this a bit of the role that for you that heritage and culture plays in your research, especially given that you're looking into this re- relationship, I guess, between um, zoonotic parasites and also indigenous communities, and in particular, the things that the parasites are infecting, which is uh, dogs, which are quite significant in dreaming, um, for these this area and also for the people themselves. So that's- yeah. So
1: the I guess the main umbrella that my research falls under is what's called one health, which is a for Western science a pretty new term. It's not been around for that long, and basically what what it refers to is the interconnectedness of human health, animal health, and environmental or ecosystem health. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's that interconnectedness that Indigenous people have been speaking about for tens of thousands of years that's really only just being noticed by so many fields in Western science today. And it's really become quite a popular topic um, for these traditionally quite siloed or separate fields of veterinary medicine, human medicine, and particularly environmental health, which too often gets left off to the side, bringing it all together, really thinking holistically about it, is something that is just so intrinsically linked with Indigenous culture. uh, And that I think that Western science has so much to learn from. And so it's a really exciting thing to be a part of, and to learn more and more all the time about how all these different connections come about, and particularly how culture can form the way that we we work in one health treatment programs, interventions, um, and particularly how things like the importance of dogs can can really make us think more carefully about how we how we do things in these areas
0: that's so sorry it's to me that's very exciting i've got a big grin uh because a a lot of my work i'm based in astronomy or um sky knowledge and uh trying to communicate the interconnectedness of sky knowledge how it just ties into everything from uh, animal knowledge plant knowledge human health uh you know, it's it's just uh, interconnectedness. Like our, our knowledges are just so completely interlinked that it is quite hard to separate them. And I can really see where you're coming from when you're talking about culture and community and health and how these things are completely interlinked. Ah, oh, so so for anyone who's tuning in, um, I'm chatting to Dr. Cam Raw. It's a Palawa ve- veterinarian and also uh, the recently appointed. Assistant Dean Indigenous of the Faculty of Science of University of Melbourne. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what pursued you, or what what led to you pursuing this role.
1: Um, well, I guess it's I've always had a growing interest in Indigenous representation, in particularly in the vet profession, um, being well, one of very few Indigenous staff members. In in science and particularly within the the vet school, um, it's something that I have worked more and more on on recently. And I think I'm just really keen on indigenous science in general, and particularly indigenous participation in science. I think it's something that uh, as a university we've we've got a long way to go on, and I'm I'm keen to be a part of that and see things grow.
0: And so, would they be your goals in the role then to try and, I guess, increase uh, not only just representation but also, I guess, uh, create a, I guess, a more, uh, I guess, culturally safe study environment for Indigenous scientists.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I, I've, I suppose, my interest was really piqued by programs like Rise, the Residential Indigenous Science Experience, and that's something I've been involved in for probably the last five or six years mm. in which we have a year nine and 10 indigenous kids come out and do a bunch of hands-on experiences with us at Melbourne Uni. Um, one of which is coming out to the vet school with me and we and we do some, some suturing with um, either little suture, practice suture boards that our vet students use or something like a bit of chicken or something like that. So wow. it feels like the real thing and i think that the realization of so many of the students that they're really good at it that they they are they have these amazing skills that they can put to use and they feel this sense of mastery in being able to do something like that and to be a part of that that realization for them that they have a place in science uh give me a real real thrill i think and so to be able to continue to create environments and i suppose not just not just provide environments where we can make it a little bit a little bit easier for students to to gain access to science through scholarships or things like that but really get students to be excited about their own cultural knowledge and what advantage that can give them in things like vet science, and I don't really mind too much if they don't come into vet science. I'd love to see many, many more Indigenous vets. But if it's in science, I think that's just an awesome thing in general.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And uh, to, to finish up, and this might just be a, a question a little out of, not left field, but you know. <laughs> Um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I uh, would you have any advice that you would give to, you know, students, Indigenous students who might be pursu- thinking about pursuing v- uh, veterinary science or just science in general, any advice, particularly from things that you wish maybe you'd known before hopping into such a field?
1: Goodness, that is a good question. I think having a go, having a go in there's a lot of vet practices out there who will very very happily take students on placements to give them an idea of what it's like to to work in a vet practice and there's so many different vet practices out there that there's you know there's one specializing in exotic animals or cats or horses there's there's so many different experiences out there and i think something that we that we look at when we do selection for vet students is have they have they had a go at at trying things like that putting you know just getting out there and and um, getting some work experience in a in a vet clinic and sometimes that can maybe help you decide that yeah you do want to do it or maybe there's something else that you find while you're doing it or on another work placement that really inspires you and I, so i think just having a go at lots of different things has always been something that's that's worked pretty well for me because it's taken my career in many different directions that I didn't necessarily expect.
0: I love that advice. I think that's spot on. Uh, Cam, thank you so much for your time today and also congratulations on your, uh, your new role. It's very exciting and it's a great milestone and to be able to see uh, blackfellas, I think, and very important places of, um, I guess, like power and voice, you know, within these very colonial institutions, I think can only bring about good things. So I want to wish you all the best and thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Okay, so we've just been speaking with Palawa veterinarian Dr. Cam Raw. Uh, Cam's research is absolutely fascinating. So if you're unfortunately just tuning in right now, you're very lucky that you haven't missed everything. You can actually head to rrr.org.au, look up Indigenuity, and you'll be able to find uh, this interview that I've had with Cam today. Listen back uh, at your leisure. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity. A weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.